This is a vital update about coronavirus. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Good evening. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Today, I can announce that for the first time in our history, the government is going to step in and help to pay people's wages. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. But we are hearing in the last few moments that the Prime Minister has been taken to hospital. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. I'm sorry if people feel that there have been failures. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Are you I, have a great, I have great love uh, for all of the people from our country, but uh, as you know, China tried to say at one point, maybe they stopped now, that it was caused by American soldiers. That can't happen. It's not going to happen. Not as long as I'm president. It comes from China. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. I can report through the government's ongoing monitoring and testing program that as of 9 a.m. today, there have been 300,034 974,000 tests carried out across the UK. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. A lot of good things have come out about the hydroxy. A lot of good things have come out. And you'd be surprised at how many people are taking it, especially the frontline workers before you catch it. The frontline workers, many, many are taking it. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. The head of the World Health Organization has defended its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. The WHO has been sharply criticized by the United States and will be the subject of an independent inquiry. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. How did they come up with this number of six feet? I think they just pulled it out of their rear end. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. I'm protesting because our liberties have been taken away by a government under, under, under dodgy scientific data. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're gonna test that too. Sounds interesting. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute. 
one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that so that you're going to have to use medical doctors. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. Our headlines today, a defiant response from Downing Street over new allegations that the Prime Minister's chief aide breached lockdown rules. To help save lives, stay at home. In my opinion, the rules are clear and they have always been clear. In my opinion, they are for the benefit of all and in my opinion, they apply to all. This is the third Take Orally special on COVID-19. In part one, I was joined by Dr. Andrew Lindsay, consultant in emergency medicine, to discuss the response to the pandemic and its impact on our department at the Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In the second episode, I sat down two metres apart with Dr. Colin Gilhooley, consultant in paediatric emergency medicine, and Dr. Shana Shan, head smart fellow, to talk about children and young people with COVID-19 and the implications of this pandemic on paediatric services. In this episode, I was joined over Zoom by Dr. Ben Rush, ST5 in public health medicine, to discuss the public health response to the pandemic and the road ahead. All information is correct at the time of recording. Any and all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, Ben. Hello there. How are you? Um, as well as can be expected, I think, given these... <laughs> Pretty unprecedented times. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. No worries. Thank you, Ben. Um, trust you and your loved ones are staying well, social distancing. We're doing this over Zoom. Oh, absolutely. We're um, being being part of PHE. I'd be shot if I wasn't following all the uh, all the advice to the letter. So absolutely, social distancing, working from home, all the rest of it. Fantastic. Well, thank you uh, for agreeing to do this and um, phoning in at the weekend, as we are. Um, so um, obviously there's a... A lot going out at the moment and a lot of doctors uh, on social media and on the telly suddenly are now experts in public health. So I wanted to actually get somebody who is training in public health down to, to do this podcast with. Um, could we start with some definitions? Because I think this is these are these phrases that are getting thrown around now a lot in the media. And I think it's important that we actually get some definitions sorted. Um, starting off with really, what is a pandemic? Sure. No, no, I think that's a that's a good way to start. I, I so so the the comms person in me wants to caveat it all by saying I'm I am obviously by no means an expert. I'm working in health protection, which is the area of public health that deals with infectious disease, um, and I'm really I'm enjoying it because of because of all of the interesting things that go on. But that you, given what else is happening, I also feel it, it's a very privileged position for all this to be happening to me as a trainee. Yeah. Um, but we shouldn't lose sight of, of the impact that it's having to individuals, to the population, um, to the healthcare system that we all work within. Absolutely. But yeah, to start off, what's a pandemic? Um, let's let's use um, the terms incidents and prevalence to start with. I don't know if I don't know if you've heard of the bathtub analogy. That that's one that's often used when when teaching about rates I, and incidents and prevalence. I haven't heard that. No, <laughs> I, I like a good analogy though. So feel free. Yeah, no, it's um, a lot of people seem to to feel sort of, especially if you're a bit of a graphic visual learner, it can help. So if you imagine disease as as water, I guess, or people with disease as water, you turn on a tap, you have a bathtub. Um, 
more flows in, more flows out, and your your amount of the population goes up and down. So most people have heard of incidence and prevalence. The prevalence is the amount in the population. So that's the uh, the amount in the bathtub. The incidence is the kind of rate of new, if you like, so the rate of new cases. So if your tap gets turned up, that's a higher incidence. Um, if there's more water in the bathtub, it's a higher prevalence. And obviously, there are other features of that. So if, if your disease is very short-lived, you may have a high incidence and a low prevalence. Um, if your disease is, is lifelong, you can have a low incidence, but still a relatively high prevalence. Cool. Um, that's the case for any disease. And I like that analogy. I, I, it, it, yeah, I find it helps. An outbreak is, is really simply just a greater than anticipated increase in any disease. So if you have a disease that you don't ever expect to see any of and you have a single case, that's an outbreak. So one Ebola in the UK would be an outbreak. Cool. In, in PHE, we tend to say two or more cases that are epidemiologically linked. So that's linked in, in time or space. So linked by person or linked by being in the same hospital or the same nursing home would count as an outbreak. So this would be your such a such a shop has not been washing their hands very well and you've got a couple of cases of E. coli and they've all been exactly. that would be an outbreak, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or if you've got a nursing home and you've got you've got two cases of something that you wouldn't expect to see there, that would be an outbreak. Moving on to um, epidemic and pandemic, I guess I guess endemic's probably worth mentioning as well. So any disease that's endemic is just present in the population in the background so you expect to see a bit of it all the time um so seasonal flu spikes but, but you could say that it's endemic it's it's more or less there all the time an epidemic is, is kind of a widespread occurrence of a disease so you'll get a more than expected spike of it in one population whereas a pandemic is i guess you could say multiple epidemics it's it's wider spread than one epidemic it's through many different countries many different regions many different not normally connected population groups. Cool. And so there was, uh, there seemed to be a lot of discussion at the time with the WHO, like, oh, we can't quite call it a pandemic. We're we're going to call it other things before we call it a pandemic, and and it seemed to be a bit confusing. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. One of the things to bear in mind with with the WHO and actually with public health in general is that it's, I know it's a cliche, but it's a science and an art, is what everyone likes to say, which means that you've got all the kind of the, the scientific underpinning and the evidence and, and the, you know, the black and white, this is what should be. But you've also got the political considerations. So the WHO is a massive, obviously, multinational and highly political organisation. So whereas scientifically it might want to say something or recommend something, there are often political forces at work other considerations, whether whether they be sort of reputational or otherwise, why they might not want to say something as soon as they otherwise would. Mm. So, so they've got definitions for what constitutes a pandemic, and and broadly, scientifically, they make sense. So, if we see spread, you know, if if it's animal to animal transmission only in a very you know in a small village in in some country, and we don't really see it elsewhere, that's at one end of the spectrum. And if there's confirmed human spread in multiple different parts of the world all going on at the same time with a new disease, that's mm. clearly a pandemic. So the principles are, mm. to me, pretty obvious. But the, 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 the politics of whether they actually stand up and say, yes, this is a pandemic, mm. can be tricky. And they did change their definition, in a sense, um, partway through this pandemic. 
because for a while they said it was a public health emergency of international concern <laughs> rather it's yeah, not a pandemic it's this other thing that is um yeah that's that's a buzz phrase so so <laughs> they've got <laughs> there's um there's a document called the international health regs um from the who and that defines this this emergency of international concern entity as as something it basically has to be quite severe quite unexpected and pose a risk of spreading further mm. and and it must be unusual it must be a sort of a fairly extraordinary thing so it can't be a disease we know a lot about and it's just sort of slowly creeping out somewhere it's got to be something fairly new mm. um and ultimately it's down to the the head of the who the director general to decide whether it constitutes an emergency of international concern mm. so things like um ebola was obviously i think swine flu was uh, zika was um interestingly mers wasn't mm. but yeah it, it's it's the science of it how mm. bad they think it's going to be how much they think it'll spread and whether there there may be political concerns about declaring it as such and I suppose it's thinking of the political concerns um mm. obviously the who were came under quite a lot of criticism a few years ago after the Ebola outbreak in, in, in the Ebola um, epidemic in, in um, Western Africa. And there seems to have slightly been a bit of a hangover over onto this going, well, we need to yeah. learn the lessons. Yeah, no, I think there was absolutely a bit of, maybe anxiety is the wrong word, but, but certainly a heightened awareness of doing things in the right way at the right time to borrow a phrase from our government. <laughs> um, so... When um, we've talked about some definitions there, um, <clears throat> shall we move away from definition slightly and start talking about preparation and the planning process? Yeah, that yeah, sense? I think that's that, that that makes sense. It's it's an interesting part of it because it's something that I so when I was purely clinical, I had no awareness whatsoever of any of the kind of the machinations behind how these things are planned mm. and. In, in a in a reassuring way that they, they are kind of planned so we've got we've got what we call a national risk register of, of various emergencies from you know ash from a volcano through to you know storms and gales and, and disease so pandemic influenza is on there um through to terrorist attacks and people sit down together and decide how so all of this is plotted out on a kind of a, a two-dimensional grid a, a matrix of likely severity against sort of chance of it happening and pan flu pandemic influenza actually rates quite high on both of them so I've, I've got a copy of it here if i just pull this up so on on the most recent national risk register pan flu is is between one in two and one in 20 chance of likelihood in any five-year period mm. and it is rated as, as the most impactful so five out of five in terms of, of relative impact so it's one of a number of things that we actually sit down and go, yeah, this might happen. We need to plan for it. There are lots of, I mean, does, does that make sense so far? Yeah, absolutely. I hope yeah, people yeah. can p picture that kind of a grid and yeah. sort of go, well, actually, certain things are on there. We know we may know that some things like global warming are, are very likely, given the science, and, and likely to have an impact. But in terms of planning periods, mm. it's not likely to have a significant impact in the very short term. Mm. So it gets bumped down the grid. And a lot of a lot of what seems to have been put in place and a lot of the, the data seems to have come from swine flu from about twelve years ago plus this, this planning process looking at not 
not a novel coronavirus, but influenza, which we know a little bit, we know more about because we've had this throughout history. It was Spanish flu, Russian flu, Asian flu, etc., etc. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I guess there's probably something, isn't there, about respiratory viruses generally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that they are given given human population density and and human travel habits, particularly, you know, within our generation, a disease with those kind of mechanisms of, of infection is much more likely to spread. Absolutely. So, so yeah, Panflu is up there. And we've got, we've got a variety of different structures in terms of how we deal with any of those emergencies. So there's, there's something called the Civil Contingencies Act, which, again, was completely new to me on, on joining public health, which, which actually sets out how we respond as a country and how we respond locally. And it, it produces a, a lot of a lot of structure and a lot of governance around the organisations like police, like the ambulance, like um, you know acute trusts, public health, fire service, local authorities. How, how they will get together, how they will work together, what they should plan for, how they should escalate incidents, how they should communicate, and so on. But on both the local level and at a national level, we've got significant structure and governance and planning around things like pandemic influenza although and this is this is my own sort of cynicism probably coming through a, a lot of this stuff you've probably seen in the news around the um the, the, the classified report on operation sorry exercise sickness yeah which was a, a sort of a pamphlet exercise a lot of this stuff we we may know about and we may plan for but actually making sure we have the resource there to deal with it is quite an expensive process. Um, making sure that it's there for something that is a one in 20 chance of happening in the next five years is politically, un, I don't know what the, what the sensitive term is, but it's not a very, it's something that most politicians would say, well, we could spend it on that or we could spend it on something that has a more certain yeah. benefit in a more certain time frame. Yeah. So my my personal cynical feeling is that a lot of these things do tend to get bumped down the list or kicked down the road. Yeah. So although we've got lots of planning, we do know an awful lot about it. Sometimes the plans are there, but what they point out can't be stood up in enough time. Mm. If that makes sense. Well, it's possibly like um, whenever there's a particularly bad snowstorm and everything grinds to a halt, and everybody says here, other countries like Norway and Canada manage absolutely fine. And we go, well, Norway and Canada get this every year. We get it one in every however many years. And if we were to spend the money on that, you guys would be complaining you're not funding, you know, the NHS yeah. or something else. Absolutely. To, to, to put a more optimistic spin on that, there's that <laughs> economics principle of opportunity cost, isn't there? Yes. If you, if you spend a resource in one way, you then can't spend it in another way. Absolutely. So, yeah, sure, we can stockpile, as you say, sort of, grit and salt for um for a one in 20 catastrophic winter but the resource that we spend doing that we then can't spend on something that happens every year Absolutely. so yeah it, it's in some ways it's a sensible decision not to spend too much on these unlikely but possible eventualities and as everyone keeps saying unprecedented i think it's the most common used word i've heard yeah well it, it's something like this hasn't happened in living memory and, no. and i guess all of the things that have changed about or that have developed about human society and again in our generation in terms of air travel population densities something like this is so much more likely to spread in the way that we have seen now than it has been at any time in history 
So, um, want to have a chat then about uh, emergency preparedness, resilience, and response, if that's okay. Sure. EPRR. Um, that is that is a bit of a buzzword. <laughs> so, so, so EPRR is um, we we obviously have a have a branch in P in PHE around emergency planning, resilience, and response, and just so so to me, I, I like to compare this back to the principle of, of prevention. So in medicine, we think of prevention as primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. So, so for, I don't know, take diabetes, um, type 2 diabetes, you, you can do primary prevention, which is stopping it before it's happened. So giving good advice around you know, diet and lifestyle. You can do secondary prevention, so, so sort of minimizing the immediate effect of it and managing it well once it's there. So making sure we have a good health service, making sure we've got good screening in place, um, making sure people can receive their prescriptions and they have good health awareness about the condition. And then tertiary prevention is way down the line when, you, when you've had significant impact, trying to mitigate that impact. Mm. So as with so many things, there's that kind of structure of, of planning, responding and recovering. Mm. And so these are like the public health phases almost that you've got. But those are the words that we're we're using as a country for our strategy, for our sort of EPRR strategy, if you like, our response strategy to this to this outbreak, this pandemic. So that first phase, contain, is very early on in the pandemic. We know that we don't have many cases, and there's a good chance that we can actually completely stop transmission, to contain transmission. So locate, identify sort of chains of transmission and break them. Identify each case test, contact trace, do all those things that will stop the disease spreading. We've sadly not been able to do that. So we've moved on to the delay phase, which is, okay, it is present in the population and it is spreading. We can't stop it from being in the population in the first place. That ship has sailed. So we can try and delay, reduce the amount of spread and delay the amount of spread. And that's that flatten the curve idea. So rather than a massive spike in cases, we can spread those cases through time and reduce the immediate impact on healthcare. And then the, I think they've added a research part to the strategy, but effectively once they've, once we've done all we can in terms of containing and delaying and we have flattened that curve throughout all of it, I feel that research should be throughout all of it. But the very final part of, of our response is, is mitigate and, and recover effectively. So it's already happening. It's already in the population We've tried all we can to delay it. So the next part is to mitigate the impact. So stand up the right resource, um, issue the right guidance, so that of the cases that we know are happening, we're doing everything we can to reduce the obviously the, the human cost of those cases. Mm. And um, so uh, you've you've mentioned there already that flattening the curve because I think that's been the bu another buzz phrase that's been there a lot, hasn't there? It has. And, and that's why you and I are doing this over Zoom. We're not meeting. This is why my hands are red raw because we're washing them every, you know, we're singing happy birthday. This, this is why we're doing yep. what we're doing. The government has put the economy into recession. We're all staying at home, etc. No, absolutely. And it's on an individual level, it can feel quite obviously it's a massive imposition. It's it's to use that word again, it's unprecedented in terms of its impact on on civil liberties, on the economy, on society as a whole. But it is a really, really important part of, well, of, of both contain and delay, but particularly delay. So the reason we're doing that is to reduce the chance of spread 
and, and reduce how much spread happens and how quickly. And what, so one of the things in public health, another, another buzz phrase that, that we have is that our patient isn't the individual, it's the population. Yeah. And a lot of the things that we do in, in public health and in health protection don't make as much sense on the individual level, but they do at the population level. So something like social distancing, if you have, I don't know, say a group of 100 people and 80 of the 100 follow social distancing very well and 20 don't, we will still get some spread. Some of those 80 may still spread a disease. Some of the 20 probably will. But overall, across the 100, we'll get less spread. If it's the other way around, we get 20 people following it and 80 people not, we know we'll get more spread. Mm. But it's really hard to say on the individual level whether they will or won't catch it or spread it. Yeah. So the more people that follow that advice, the less spread we get across the whole population of whatever we are, 66 million. Yeah. I suppose that that's the thing with the individual is going, oh, well, an individual can go, I did X, Y, Z, and I still got it. Mm. It's just the same as, oh, I knew somebody who smoked till he was 100 and he never got cancer. But like you just said, it's the population. So, I'm, you know, yeah. your individual case, very interesting, obviously, at the individual level, but it, I'm thinking about the millions here. Yeah, no, absolutely right. That's 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 a sort of a, the, the, the epidemiological paradox isn't it you, you can't generalize back to the individual from the population but but at that population level hmm. um we know the measures make sense and we can prove we can demonstrate that they work even if we can't demonstrate the same at an individual level hmm. um so shall we touch back on some definitions then because i think that's a good point we've we started talking there about um breaking the, the chain of infection and one yep. of the, the things that's being mentioned is R0, uh, or the R yes. number, and, yep. and you know the health secretary's been mentioning it now, getting less than one. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, this was uh, you know, being quoted a lot as a, as a value around three um, yep. back at the beginning. So could we just you know, to touch on yeah, R0, what that means? So, so it's, it's a very nice sort of epidemiological principle of the reproductive number. Um, in essence, it just means in a completely vulnerable population with no immunity to a disease, the R0 is the number of, of primary cases each, each case of that disease will go on to infect. So if you drop one person with COVID-19 in the middle of a population where none of them have it, none of them have immunity, the, the early numbers were between two and three, which means that that one case would go on to infect between two to three other secondary cases. And obviously each of them would then go on to infect another two to three and another two to three and so on. So it, you know, from that, it's quite easy to see that if the R0 of the disease is less than one, it will eventually die out in a population. Mm. So that's the, that's the important thing that we're looking for is that every case infects less than one other case and then eventually you get exactly a disease dying and out. that that actually ties into a few other principles that that have been bandied about in the media so the idea of herd immunity i was going to touch on um, that excellent yes thank you <laughs> yeah it's it, it was frustrating actually to see to see that being taken up as a phrase and kind of misrepresented mm. so so herd immunity is is an absolutely valid epidemiological concept but the way that we use it is is to say so we use it in vaccines. So we need to get, remember, the R0 represents a completely vulnerable population. So in order to basically 
make a disease die out in a population, we need to get its its R value down to less than one. So the more people in that population that are immune to that disease, the more people it can't spread to, and the more that will bring bring the R value down. So you can work out what's called a herd immunity threshold by by using using that value, how many people in that population are immune. And we use that. I mean, we have used that to great effect in, say, measles is a good example. Measles is one of the most infectious um, diseases that, that we know. So it's it's naught is sort of between 15, 18. So that's that's actually huge in an immune population. Each case goes on to 15 plus secondary cases and each of them go on to. So you actually need quite a high proportion of the population to be immune so your herd immunity threshold is sort of 95% plus before you'll kill that disease out in the population. Great concepts. Um, to me, it, it sort of makes intuitive sense. Mm. But you can't just spring that on a population with a new disease. And we don't know enough about immunity. Mm. We don't have a vaccine. We can't demonstrate immunity after the infection with enough confidence mm. to talk about something like a herd threshold. Because there was all this talk was that the government's policy was originally that we were all to go out and get it and take it on the chin and that, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, 60% should get it and then we'll be fine. And, and I'm not, yeah, uh, it's being I mean, it's being banded around by a lot of people with a political point to prove as well. Yes, and, and that, was, that was also really frustrating. They could be right. I mean... <laughs> That, that is that is one of the things that could happen, but it is certainly not the appropriate thing to happen, and it's certainly not the only option that we had at that point or that we have now. So it's the way that herd immunity was being talked about wasn't wasn't correct in that sense. Yeah. If we have a vaccine and we can show that it works, mm. we can then start talking about herd immunity. We can say if we immunise at least eighty percent of the population, mm. then that's enough, and this disease will, will die out or be controllable. Yeah. Because that was it with with smallpox, wasn't it? It was this idea of ring vaccining around the cases, getting the R naught below one, and then it eventually died out. There were no new cases. Smallpox exactly. is eradicated. Yeah, and it's it's one of the few. Sadly, it's one of the few success yeah. stories. I mean, we can do that. We should have been doing that. We should have been able to have done that for measles. Mm-hmm. I would hope that of all of the bad things that happen out of this pandemic one of the good things might be that people wake up to the benefit of vaccines yeah we could do a, i'm sure we could do a podcast just on vaccine hesitancy so we'll we'll leave it there oh, the vaccines work there we go yeah. um yeah. shock, shock horror that. public health doctor says vaccines work shock um so um i suppose that that's so there's there's been a lot of the people commenting on the government. I'm not sure if there were a different government, it would be put in quite the same way, but there seems to be this mean, nasty government want us all to go out and get it, boo hiss. Have you felt that? It certainly felt like that to myself. It it did feel, I agree with you, um, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, it did feel a lot more like that. It feels like it was quite late in the day when noise was being made around social distancing and lockdown quote unquote so so yeah i think we were probably a bit late to the game with that mm-hmm. i remember a speech that um that boris johnson gave where where he he visited a hospital and he said well i certainly shook hands with everyone and i knew there were some cases there and you'll be pleased to know i think he said you'll be pleased to know i shook hands with everyone yeah so yeah there definitely has been a, a change in direction <laughs> 
and Mike Pence in America visiting a hospital without a mask on. I think his next visit, he was wearing a mask, though. He, uh... Yeah, there was a bit of political fallout about that as well. <laughs> America's response is, again, probably worthy of a podcast in itself. But no matter how bad I'm feeling about what might be happening here, mm. it always seems to be that much worse over there. Do you want to take a moment to comment on injecting bleach at this moment? <laughs> um, well, that's... <laughs> It's just, words fail me. I mean, how should we even be needing to comment on that? Yeah. Un- unbelievable. Don't inject bleach. Um, so continuing then with um, with some definitions, because people have been talking about mortality rate, case fatality rate. They've been saying, oh, you can't look at our number of deaths. You have to look at deaths per million, all of this. Mm-hmm. So can we take a moment to have a bit yeah, of a chat of about that? I think, again, it's probably helpful to, to just... To take a step backwards and think about some first principles. So, um, I, I guess one of the most useful, really, really basic first principles is the idea of a denominator. Any number, any rate is is kind of meaningless without knowing what it's over. What the, you know, we've got a hundred cases, but a hundred cases in what? We've got a hundred cases in a town of ten thousand. Um, are there any cases we don't know about? Are there any people in the town we don't know about? So there are so many uncertainties that that it's if we're talking about a rate so a rate's obviously a number over another number do we have confidence that we've caught all of the people we need to catch in that figure have we tested everyone um i think the answer here is is universally no so are there people there that we haven't picked up so is that a a, a false rate and the denominator the number it's over are we confident about that as well so if we talk about a rate Say, say a, a case fatality rate, we usually mean the proportion of deaths coming from a disease compared to the total number with that disease. But again, those uncertainties, have we picked up everyone with that disease? Which is why I guess some people probably also talk about the mortality rate, which is, which is more simply the, just the number of deaths, number of deaths in the population. And you can standardize rates. So to try and take care of some of those uncertainties. Ooh. I don't know what the easiest way to talk about this is. If you have a rate, is it over a certain amount of time? So you need to define that. Is it within a certain subgroup of the population? So we know that mortality rates in the elderly are different to mortality rates in the young, mortality rates in more or less vulnerable groups. Do you want to standardize those and compare them back to a standardized population? Um, Do you want to adjust them in some other way? Um, Do you want to quote them overall? So there are lots lots of kind of conflicting terms for broadly this a similar concept how many people have died hmm. but it's always worth asking how many have we counted and yeah. what are we comparing it to okay and and we'll, um, we'll touch on we'll get on to testing in a little bit looking down our list of, of um, questions <laughs> uh, big topic obviously um but then a lot of people have been saying well you about using death per million then because populations are different as we said and you know people have pointed at belgium going actually their dead deaths per million is quite higher than our death per million um so when would we use deaths per million is it useful uh, or is it just people again trying to prove a political point i would so it, it it is useful i think it's it's dependent on how it's used and what it's used for so as long as you're confident that you're comparing like with like and i guess that's again the key question here if you've got a rate per million and you're comparing it to another rate per million in another country, is that is that million otherwise the same? I mean, are they the same sort of age distribution? 
um, if they're cases, are they diagnosed in the same way using the same test? Is the test given to the same kinds of people? Is it only given to people who are hospitalised? Is it given to the wider population? So just because it, it clearly defines that it's deaths per million doesn't necessarily give you enough information to trust that figure. Because it's a relatively low number of deaths over the whole population, I think using deaths per million makes sense because it it translates it into a number that that, that we can look at and it feels like it has more meaning rather than a sort of a tiny fraction of a percentage. Yeah. But other than that, it still depends on who we're testing, mm. who we're counting and why. Mm. And so, because there's a lot that's been made about looking at New Zealand, for example, um, mm -hmm. and comparing them to us, comparing the Republic of Ireland to us. And um, obviously, we are a much more densely populated country than those countries. We have a larger population than those countries as well. So how what can we do in order to make sure that the numbers correlate properly? How can we adjust um, the data from, say, the UK and the data from New Zealand to make it actually meaningful rather than just counting, well, you've had so many deaths, we've had so many deaths? I think that's a really good question that unfortunately doesn't have a really good answer. <laughs> there, are, there are so many uncertainties. There are certain things we cannot, of course, adjust for. So, so say a different age structure of the population there are loads of, of very very accepted ways of standardizing a rate across across an age distribution and then if you've got a country with a very different age structure like i don't know say an african nation versus japan you would be able to adjust those so that you come up with an overall rate that is weighted for those differences in age brackets but with all of those other uncertainties around this, I mean, think of the different testing strategies we've had even just in our own country, mm. let alone testing strategies in other countries. Yeah. Think about, and I know this is getting a bit a bit woolly, but think about attitudes to healthcare between us and, say, America. So we've got a free at the point of access healthcare system. People in this country generally are pretty happy to access healthcare without having those concerns that, say, the average American lights about. Is yeah. this covered? under my health insurance plan, do I have health insurance? What's the copay? Um, where do I go? What are the options? So that affects how people seek help for health issues. That affects whether people are willing to step forward and say, be tested. Um, if they're, you know, if they lose their jobs, are they going to get something from the government, like a furlough scheme or not? So once you start thinking a little bit wider about where we're getting our figures from, I think adjusting for the things that we know about, like, say, age structure, is about all we can do. Mm. We can comment on, ah, oh, well, this country has tested in a different way. Yeah. This country, I think Burma still says that they, they haven't had any cases. Mm. Um, so does I North think, Korea. Think, well, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, do we believe that? Well, I it, don't know. It might probably, be true. It might be true, yeah. But they, They're kind um, of on lockdown all, all the time, aren't they? <laughs> Um, exactly. So, so it might actually be that no cases have come in. I think it's far more likely that politically they don't want to admit they have cases or their healthcare system couldn't couldn't cope with those cases and it would be a disaster if they admitted it. Mm. So they've decided not to admit it. I know that's a horrible thing to say, Yeah. but it sort of illustrates so many differences between how we're collecting those cases and how we're counting them that comparing rates, I think you have to take with a very, very large pinch of salt. Mm. And I think that this has been something that's been sort of shifting the whole way through. I mean, a few months ago, China changed how they were. They weren't just looking at the PCR test. They then said, oh, we're now including 
mm. I think it was CT findings, wasn't it? Where there's no serological evidence, but we're looking yeah. at the radiological evidence. Yeah. Oh, that was likely COVID. And suddenly this huge spike. Yeah, it yeah. has felt like building a, a, trying to build a house on quicksand at times. Absolutely. So, yeah, when, when you look at even within one country and, and within a country like China, that's it's got quite significant mechanisms in place for deciding this is how we're going to do it and then doing it. I mean, they were able to lock down whole cities, you know, build hospitals in 10 days. If, if they're – I won't comment on sort of how believable their figures are in other senses, but if, if, they, can, if they can go, look, we're changing the definition and suddenly all the figures just, just jump to something else – that just goes to show how much uncertainty there is mm. in in the rates that we're using, mm. how they're counted, how they're defined, mm. um, how accurate the tests are, mm. who the tests are being done on. So, yeah, I mean, it, I, I wish there was a much easier way of doing it. But unfortunately, especially with a new disease like this, mm. there are just so many uncertainties and things that are difficult to compare between populations and countries. Be years of... Years in the making, I think this will. Um, so we uh, still this testing. We are going to talk about testing. Before we talk about testing, I just want to then touch because we talked about different populations. And I think it's fair yeah. to say that this disease has affected different countries in different ways, and a lot of that has been the demographics that it's been hitting. Is, yeah. Was that fair? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely fair. Um, so it, in Italy, for example, the older population has been hit, whereas in Germany, it seems to have started primarily in younger people i'm not really sure what the what the thinking is around that i mean that certainly seems to be what's come out of the figures my, my guess would be that some of it is down obviously to the population demographics and the fact that there might be differences in in those population groups in those areas but i think a lot of it was was down to the initial spread and so because of because of how far it was able to spread in italy before before people sort of sat up and, and started taking measures to limit spread, it was able to hit a lot of vulnerable groups. Whereas in other countries, I guess in, in part thanks to that wake-up call, there was much earlier action. But whether that's the only reason why we've got that age difference, I'm not sure. Mm. But it, it, it seems, you know, if you're... Again, we'll talk about testing. If you've got... Um, you know, if you've got an older population who are being hit with more comorbidities, you could have all the intensive care beds in the world. But sad to say, if your population is not a candidate for that, it's going to hit you then in, in terms of mortality and outcomes as well. Yes, no, no uh, absolutely. So again, all those other factors. And if, if you've got a, uh, a developed nation with a very elderly population, lots of comorbidities that are being medically managed, you've in effect got, got a huge burden of, of a vulnerable population there with com comorbidities that, that make them more susceptible mm. than if you've got a comparable population in a place, perhaps with not as good a healthcare system, but also not as much non-communicable disease burden. Mm. So you'll, you'll get a lower mortality rate in that group, um, even though you might have more spread. Cool. Right, let's talk about testing. Go on. <laughs> Should we be testing more? Go. <laughs> um, there we go, Ben. <laughs> well, you've, you've really distilled it down there. <laughs> in, in a nutshell, yeah, I, th I think we absolutely should. And, and that's been a pretty clear message from the WHO. As, as we were saying earlier on, a lot of this comes back to the politics 
So there are a lot of things that perhaps the science says we should be doing or the kind of rationale says we should be doing, but that we don't have the resource to. And politically, sometimes that's a very uncomfortable thing to have to stand up and admit. It's from a personal perspective in as, as a trainee who's been involved in the response on the public health side, it's been really frustrating to see the differences in how testing has been pushed out and to see the rhetoric from, from the national government saying, we're doing this or we're promising that. And, and a sort of a lack of, <laughs> a lack of seeing that through to, to the sort of the front line on the ground, how that testing is rolled out, who by, who organizes it. We've had, for instance, multiple 180s around testing in nursing homes who does it how it's organized who's eligible um it's clearly going to be useful to have more testing and more results because if we know with certainty who has an infection then we can treat them accordingly we can isolate them we can cohort them if we don't then we have to go by clinical suspicion or by treating everyone the same way which is more resource intense i mean it's, it's clearly not practical to try and isolate every single person in lots of institutional settings and we have less confidence over whether they're going to keep on spreading it. So, yeah, I think exactly the WHO is saying mm. testing is an absolute cornerstone of, of controlling an outbreak. Because mm. if you don't know who's got it, then you're automatically in a worse place mm. to limit its spread. Mm. So, I mean, f forgive me if I'm wrong here. I'm going to bow down to your your greater, need, uh, greater experience and expertise. Um, but, you know, we, we know with, with COVID-19... About 80%, give or take, get a flu-like illness who can stay at home. Mm -hmm. That's been the data. Yeah. We know that of that 20%, they're the ones who need to come into hospital for some degree of care. Five Of which 15% will need ward-based care. And then 5% need critical care. And then sadly, about 2.5% um, don't survive. They die. So it seems that in, in countries like Germany who are doing more community testing, i.e. the people who are staying at home, who would get well anyway, but yep. are therefore being tested as positive, that's going to improve your A, your public health response, because you know what's going on in the community, yep. but B, will also improve your mortality rate because you're capturing the people who... Your, your, sorry, your case fatality rate because you're capturing the people who get well anyway yeah. in the community not just which seems to be happening more here where we're getting those 20 percent who go to hospital of yeah. which a tenth die sadly am i wrong you're absolutely right no, no you're absolutely right that, that's that's <laughs> so that's a, a key part of that well we've got a raise but how have we calculated it and and who's gone into it so, so that sort of apparent mortality rate that you were talking about if you test a whole bunch of people that are much more likely to be in the in the milder side of things and much more likely to recover then obviously your apparent mortality rate over all of those tests is going to be lower than if you're only testing the ones who are more likely to suffer serious adverse consequences and or die so absolutely if you're doing more community testing mm. especially if we know that there's lots circulating in the community then yes that that will affect your rate mm. and interestingly we've got so not just for this disease, if we zoom back again, we only, for any disease, you know, you only know if somebody's got it if you've tested them and, and you've got a positive result. So how do we know about diseases that are circulating in the community? 
we've got lots of approaches. And one of them that, that we've used a little for this is, is what's called sentinel surveillance. So surveillance generally is, is that idea of looking out and seeing how a disease is spreading and who it's, who it's affecting. Sentinel surveillance is where you pick specific sites, and we've got this for flu. So GP surgeries who will test a proportion of their patients without without having a sort of a clinical filter just to see what's there in the it's kind of like you know back back in geography in school where you I don't know, you, you'd pick some animals and dab some tip on their back and then scatter them back in the community and you'd get an idea of how many there are in total even though you're not testing all of them so we have some idea but we're not routinely testing in the community yet so one we don't have that clear picture of who's got it in the community and two we then can't take as confident actions around the people who have tested positive. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it seems to be that our nursing home structure seems to have been particularly hit by this yeah. um, as a result. No, absolutely. And up until relatively recently, the strategy was only testing to confirm an outbreak in an institutional setting like a nursing home. So we were we were under instruction to only offer up to five tests per nursing home so that we could say, well, yes, there's confirmed cases there. We now need to take outbreak precautions to try and reduce spread. But a lot of nursing homes would argue back, and I think that's quite reasonable of them to argue that, that if they could test everyone, they'd be able to take better precautions because perhaps they couldn't isolate everyone. Mm. And if they knew who had the disease, they could do that in a more efficient way. Mm. Um so we we've talked about um uh testing we've talked a bit there about about mortality um just one more sort of phrase i just wanted to touch on and this is expected mm-hmm. deaths which again is another thing that's being thrown around going oh there's been x more expected deaths and i so the first question is you know what is what does ex- what are expected deaths how does it calculated uh, there, that's my first question. <laughs> okay, um, I think it's it's one of those things where it does exactly what it says on the tin. So we do have obviously some mortality in the background anyway, and if we're looking at something new, then one of the things we can do is compare to what we'd expect to see anyway without it. So if we've got a new disease and we can't accurately pick up everyone who's got it, but we know that some of them will have some outcome from it. And we know that normally there's X amount of that outcome. We can look at the difference between what we would normally see as the baseline and what's happening now and get a rough idea of of the proportion of people with this new condition. So expected deaths are, I don't know exactly how they're calculated for this, but it would be what we'd expect to see in that group as a baseline. Say, if there's no other significant changes, we could take previous year and extrapolate in terms of population. Cool. And then to, so people are then saying, well, we've seen this X number of more deaths than we would expect, mm-hmm. and then placing this on COVID-19. Therefore, it must be COVID-19. Um, that doesn't sound particularly scientific to me. Uh, I would agree. <laughs> but I suppose there's a great issue. So you've got, so the way, so again, I'm not, I've not got your expertise, but it seems to me that there's a difference between dying with COVID-19 and dying of COVID-19. Absolutely. So that's a key difference. So it's just like, you know, you could have cancer, but if you get run over, that's not the cancer that killed you. That's the way I see, you know. Um, no, you're, you're up. Uh, yeah. Absolutely right. 
But then I think there's also the other aspect is because everything is on lockdown, you work in A&E when you work clinically, I work in A&E clinically, people are staying at home. And so there's this difference of people who are dying of COVID-19, but also potentially the impact of other services being different or, or people staying at home and not coming in because they felt some chest pain, for example. Absolutely. And I think that's that's a really good sort of one-two way of explaining why using just expected deaths isn't particularly useful here, because in order to use, in order to compare a figure against an expected figure, you've got to have a reasonable confidence that the thing you're trying to indirectly measure that way is the only difference. And here it absolutely, it clearly isn't. So, so that second of your two points where so many things have changed compared to say a year ago, we're going out less, so we're spreading less infection. We're we're sort of suffering less road accidents, and and by virtue of just less normal day-to-day activity going on, the burden of lots of other things has been reduced. The the awareness of COVID nineteen has increased. So, at any other time in any other year, somebody in a nursing home with a bit of a cough, nobody would bat an eyelid. But at the moment, people are jumping up and down. Oh no, it's a cough. So you've got all of these all of these different facets of why things are quite different at the moment. I think it's it's very risky to have much confidence in just that difference between sort of what we're observing now and what we would have expected to use that as the only yardstick for how much we're seeing. But that doesn't make a newspaper headline, does it? Absolutely not. It's annoying me. And I I think <laughs> no, it, it does me as well. The, um, the the other thing that you mentioned around people dying with as opposed to of, and that, that's a problem that we have with, with lots of things. So you know something like I, th- I think you mentioned. Did you mention cancer? So as I said, you, like you could have you could have terminal cancer, hmm. but you've been run over. So your cause of death was actually the fact that you were hit by a car, not the fact that you had cancer, for example. Exactly. So, sometimes it will be really obvious. So so that's a nice, clean, obvious example. Other times it's a lot less clear. I think one of the issues with with COVID nineteen is I'm not personally I'm not that confident that, that people are going to be coming at this with the exact same approach. So if somebody's completing a, a you know say a cause of death, is that clinician coming at it with exactly the same approach as in oh well these were the symptoms these were these were some results I'm I'm pretty sure that COVID nineteen was a cause compared to the next clinician in the next hospital along going, well, actually, this person had, you know, this condition, that condition, the other comorbidity. They've been in and out of hospital for, you know, countless times in the last six months. This was probably going to happen anyway. I don't, I think that's contributory, but not a direct cause. I don't think that, that everyone's coming at it the same way. Mm. And I don't know what the answer to that is. No, nor do I, but I think it's an important point that people need to be aware of. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to touch at this point on you. You say you know you are working in public health. Just an idea of your what your day to day work is at the moment. How it has been different. Uh, how it's been the same. Do you think there are any it's, changes going to happen to public health in the future? That's that's a very broad question. I know. So, I know. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I, I'm. I, I'd, I'd love to chat about it because it's well. Obviously, it's my bread and butter at the moment. So, public health is just just very quickly that there are three different areas to public health, and this 
responding to infectious outbreaks is health protection. And since the Andrew Lansley reforms in 2012-2013, health protection has been housed in this still relatively new organisation, Public Health England. So Public Health England are responsible for health protection. Normally, so outside of, of this sort of crisis scenario, we, we have a very small team that responds to, to new events. So we've got Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, what we call an acute response sensor. So if anyone calls up with a notifiable disease, if there's an environmental hazard like a warehouse fire, um, if there's, so a, say, say a measles outbreak um, or an outbreak of diarrhea and vomiting in a care home or at a wedding, that all comes under this relatively small team. Out of hours, there's, there's on call. So actually in the East Midlands, there, there are two registrars as first on call, one to the north, one to the south. And by and large, for such a, a large population area, that's enough. We have work ticking in all the time that we can manage. The number of cases and, and the sheer workload that, that COVID-19 has caused means there's absolutely no way that that small team can manage. So there's been a, a huge response structure stepped up, which is something that's been planned. So we've got, we've got that structure quite clearly outlined. Some parts of it we've had to tweak. Some parts of it we, we've had to come up with because we haven't planned them. So there is an incident, effectively an incident control. So there's there's a complete team that looks after the East Midlands as a patch, and they will do things like cascade information from the national team. They will sort of consolidate bits of guidance and make sure the right information goes to the right people, both both downwards and upwards. We had for a while contact tracing cells, which are groups of people or were groups of people that would do contact tracing. We, we still have a team that responds to queries about COVID-19. And obviously, we've got the original acute response centre that responds to everything else. So if you go into work and you have a meningitis and you call up, it's nothing to do with COVID, hopefully, and it will get through to that team. So we've suddenly had to quadruple or more the number of staff that are available to respond. And we've had to pull those in from all the other areas of Public Health England. Mm. So a lot of, just like in an acute trust, a lot of the a lot of the other services, the elective services, the less, the less, I don't want to say less important, but the less acute services have been stood down to create capacity for COVID. We've done much the same thing. Mm. So the rotor system is, we've got a huge pool of people and we're putting them into these different cells to respond to the different mm. aspects of COVID. So there has been a cell purely around nursing homes and institutional outbreaks. There's been a cell responding to clinicians inquiries it's been interesting. Some of them are Monday to Friday, some of them are 24-hour. And, and what have um, you been doing in your particular cell? We get sort of chopped and changed between between them all. So I've, I've been lucky enough that I've had a bit of experience across all of them. Mm. So I've, I've done some stuff at a fairly high level, lots and lots of stuff at a fairly low, sort of just responding to queries and managing the caseload level. In an ideal world, we'd want to track absolutely everything that happens because that epidemiological information is our strength in terms of knowing what's happening and managing the crisis. Pragmatically, so much information is coming through that we just can't do that all of the time. Yeah. So we're some of what we're doing is, is firefighting and inputting what we can whilst whilst taking the steps that we need to. Yeah. Uh, and so you you mentioned there that people are being pulled from other things, and and mm. I and as I said, you you also work in A and E uh, like I do. I can't remember the last 
and stemmy I saw. Um, that is, that might be because I'm mostly usually in the hot area, so I am seeing right. most of the query COVID patients. Um, right. I am wondering about the hangover from this. The non when when we are out of we'll have along that takes, but what the the impact is going to be on non-COVID and our screening on these other patients. And I suppose, again, it, it's all supposition at this stage, isn't it? But it, it does make me wonder. Yeah, I think that there, there are a lot of ethically and philosophically interesting linked concepts in that. So there's some of this is around what, what people call the rule of rescue. You know, when there's something awful going on with a human cost, we all feel compelled to do everything we can, you know, like money and efforts, no object. We've got to save these people. So when there is something like COVID, there's this overwhelming, we have to do something. We can't do nothing. We can't just have business as usual. But of course, there's a cost to that, as, as you rightly point out. If you're having to stand down everything else, yes, some other things will be happening less often. So we may be getting less less end stemmies. People are sitting indoors and, and not doing as much. But people will still have cancers that progress. Mm. People will still need elective surgeries. Um, by continuing to not do those things, we are incurring a health cost completely separate to COVID. So what's the balance? Um, how do we how do we manage to do what's best for the population as a whole across all of the health concerns? And that's, yeah, to me, that that's really fascinating and really unclear. We can't go on like this forever. No. Um, nor, nor will we. But at what stage do we start to come back to non-COVID-related things, whether that's at the acute end, so elective surgeries and the like, mm. and outpatient clinics, or whether that's at the planning end. So obviously we've pulled a lot of people away from, say, the screening immunizations teams. Um, we've pulled a lot of people away from their, their jobs doing health promotion stuff around sort of diabetes and smoking those things will continue to have a health implication if we don't do them. Mm. I suppose more supposition as well. Um, there's been talks about how this might have multiple peaks to it, about how <laughs> Spanish flu came in you know, 1919 and then seemed to go away and then came back more uh, virulent, etc. Um, again, uh, you know, do we know anything about that or is this again just likely we're just again guessing um looking at a previous virus and trying to predict what a completely different virus is going to do yeah i mean I, i'm again I'm, I'm no sort of respiratory virus expert but it seems to me very unlikely that this will completely disappear i think it will become for some period of time endemic will have some background level of it but certainly in terms of multiple peaks we've got still a large proportion of the population that will be vulnerable to infection. Hmm. And if we suddenly step down all of these social distancing measures, lock down all the rest of it and go straight back to business as usual, without a doubt, we will see another spike, another peak. Hmm. So we need to continue delaying and, and reducing and limiting the spread of the disease whilst we work on a sort of a longer term strategy to manage it. We do successfully manage all kinds of disease in the population at an endemic level. Um, there's no reason why we can't do that for this, and I'm sure we will. Mm. But that strategy of moving from where we are now, where, where a relatively small proportion of the population are, for want of a better word, are immune, but there's a huge proportion that are vulnerable 
and that could contribute to a massive second peak if we do this in the wrong way. Hmm. I suppose that leads on to my next question. I, I think we're... I don't know how many drugs are currently being tested. Um, remdesivir was out and now appears to be back in. Well, yeah, anyway. Um, but I still think probably a vaccine is going to be our most likely strategy and our most successful strategy. Yeah. Obviously, prevention being better than cure, you, you know, he says to the public health trainee. Um, you know, say, so say tomorrow we have a vaccine. It's working. It's brilliant. What What's our likely strategy going to be with it do you think and, and and what time frame are we looking at in terms of once a vaccine is in place you know do you think it will become part of everybody gets it or do you think it'll be more the targeted approach it will certainly start with a targeted approach and i think that's just a, a pragmatic limitation we've got to go through all of the usual hoops in terms of testing it and making sure it's safe before we can roll it out and we're not going to be able to produce and distribute enough in a sensible time frame to immunise the whole population overnight. So we've got to do it in a staged, phased way. And, and the sensible thing to do is obviously to do that in the most vulnerable groups first, because they're the ones that will, will most stand to benefit and that we most want to protect. So I would imagine once once we have a vaccine that, that has passed all the relevant trials and that we're happy to use and that we, we know works, we would start giving it to those people who are most vulnerable, the people who are being shielded, um, the people that are most worried about, and then we'll spread that out bit by bit. I don't know whether it will end up being a vaccine that's on our sort of national schedule. Mm. I guess there are still so many unknowns around this, but, yeah. but certainly in, in the sort of the, the medium term, it will be something that we'll want to give to as much of the population as possible. Mm. Mm. And, and what is the what is the usual time frame for a virus for a vaccine sorry to to be produced and to be rolled out and and what sorts of considerations are there for it to become part of the the national schedule i'll be honest with you i don't know in terms of a, a time a time frame in sort of months or, or weeks I've, I've seen in the media people very optimistically saying sort of by the end of summer i, I think that's <laughs> from Generally, if there is a vaccine that we're considering, it will have been through all of that already. And then we start to look at the evidence for whether, you know, whether it works, whether it's effective and whether it's cost effective before we make those decisions about making it into into the national sort of schedule or whether we make a decision about offering it to vulnerable groups. So I've never been through the process from a vaccine at such an early stage. But then again, we've, we've never had that that need to that uh, COVID-19 has sort of has brought out at the moment. Mm. So I, I would I would follow what's what's being reported in that it's being looked at hopefully by late summer. I don't know how many they'll be able to produce. Mm. Um, I would imagine small numbers for targeted at-risk groups first. And by then we'll know a lot more about how it's spreading. Mm. Hopefully we'll develop a lot more information about how effective the vaccine is and we'll make a decision longer term once we've got it under control of the population because we're not going to be the only country that wants it <laughs> no as is the case with ppe and everything else yeah not. so it seems um you know from from the ppe point of view we've we've been importing quite a bit and mm -hmm. quite reliant on our imports which at a time when there's been a national international shutdown of of transport and you know no shortage of people all wanting some 
Um, you know, I, I read some, the, the government published a few weeks ago saying that they their contingency plans were based on pandemic flu. Yeah. They weren't expecting the care the the host the um, nursing home the care home populate also all needing PPE as well. And basically, demand has got through our supply far quicker than planned. Do you think that there'll be a sh- we need more of a domestic production of our PPE? Again, it's not an easy question, is it? No, I, I'm I'm surprised that, that we've we've well actually I prob- I'm, I'll be honest with myself I'm probably not that surprised I think around stuff like exercise sickness it would have been clear what was needed I don't think for a second that anyone failed to foresee that we would need the volume of PPE that we are going through to manage a pandemic like this it it it, it stands to reason I think the issue is that stockpiling it was costly um, and stepping it up I don't again the world hasn't ever really been in the situation where we've got the kind of supply chains that we do have in the modern era and yet every country is clamoring for this stuff mm. so I guess that's what everyone's sort of failed to fail to foresee mm. I'm assuming that those plans thought it would be easier to acquire but failed to predict how globally mm. in demand this stuff is I mean there's been some real some real unscrupulous work Mm. Um, on some countries' parts, in, in sort of purloining stuff that was going to other countries, yeah. it's clear that everyone needs it. Mm. Um, not every country is able to manufacture it in the volume, mm. and and even if if you can, you you can't step up stuff like all the stuff we saw around ventilators. You can't just produce certain things overnight. It's going to be fascinating to see everything that comes out of this after after we're through the worst of it. Once all the literature really starts churning out mm. and around examining countries' responses. And clearly, that the lack of adequate PPE preparedness and supply is is significant. It's a significant issue. Mm. So it may well be that that yes, this new legislation around mandating the production of certain things in mm. in a situation like this. Mm. But I, I I wouldn't know what what that would look like. No, no. Um, and I wouldn't know how practical it is to ask people who you know, a business that normally wouldn't be asked to do that. Yeah. Because in 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 peacetime, quote unquote. We don't need vast volumes of ventilators and PPE and all the rest of it. Yeah. So to make sure people are stood up ready to do that at short notice mm. and have all the certifications and have the kit that's that's approved and ready to go, but not use it, mm. is, is going to be costly and, again, politically probably unpopular. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good point then to start. If we're thinking about PPE for medical staff, there's been talk <laughs> about providing masks for the public. Uh, yeah. And certainly on, say, public transport and things like that, uh, making sure that everybody has a mask. I mean, I it sounds great. Sounds like a headline. Uh, logistically, sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. So, again, again, there there are a few concepts to think about here. I mean, it it probably makes people feel better. Yeah. So I'm 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 half Chinese by background, and I grew up in Southeast Asia. And since SARS, there's been a, it's become sort of culturally accepted to wear masks in public, more in some places than others. Um, there's an idea about sort of protecting others if you've got a cough, but there's there's not a huge amount of evidence that it works, as, as I'm sure you're aware. And there's, so if, if we're doing something that makes people feel better, then that's a positive in one sense. 
so people are you know it, it raises morale it, it makes people feel like they're doing something if we're doing something that feels intuitively like it should work then you know there's, there's lots of things that we do now that we know there's an evidence base for but we started doing purely because it seemed sensible so we're not going to generate the evidence base unless we start doing it but there's yeah. also that issue of look we've just discussed but we don't have enough ppe there's the there's the opportunity cost of if we if we distribute ppe among the public and we say everyone should wear a mask and it should be a surgical mask then where are we taking those away from yeah because that, that, that's what worries me when people are saying, oh, you know, sport come back, for example, you know, the Premier League, yeah. uh, you know, and the, the, the sheer number of tests that that would involve. And it appears that there's a finite level um, of all of these uh, resources. Uh, yeah. And like you've just said, you're taking it away from one area to provide to another. Um, and... Um, I think Matt, Matt Hancock's phrase has been there's a positive but weak uh, um, outcome if, if the public wear a mask. I mean, I, I've been to the supermarket and seen what the general public have called <laughs> yes. PPE and yep. how they are rubbing their eyes with their latex gloves and scratching their nose and putting their, you know, their sanding mask back on and you go, OK, yeah. Actually, you make a really good point there. <laughs> Um, one of one of the other issues is okay. It might make people feel better, but is some of that a false sense of security? So, so PPE yeah. used incorrectly is is going to be harmful. Arguably more harmful than no PPE at all. Mm. If somebody's not wearing anything and 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 it makes them think, oh, I've got to be careful about what I touch. I've got to wash my hands. Then that's good. Mm. If somebody's wearing a mask and gloves and they feel they're protected, but they're as you say, touching everything, moving their mask. You know, scratching their eyes, and <laughs> yeah. that's going to be worse mm. than, than option A. Mm. So, I I'm not aware of any of any evidence that says it, it, it's particularly effective. Mm. Obviously, if we had oodles of PPE, I would say educate the public, distribute it freely, fine. Mm. But we don't have oodles of PPE, and we don't have the resource to do those things. So, given what's been going on, I I would be disappointed, I guess if we're using clinical grade PPE for the public in the absence of significant evidence yeah. and knowing that we've got a shortage where we need mm. it. I do wonder whether it will be as, as um, you know, you, when you go out and about and, and, you know, Nottingham is a very, is an international city. We have students from all over mm. and you do see people who, who are from, who look for the, from Asia and, you know, from, uh, from Southeast Asia and they are wearing a mask, quite happily you know they're with their friends and they're all wearing masks it seems like a a, a cultural you know this yeah. is what we do um and they were very much in the minority i do wonder whether this as a hangover from this over the coming year you know we, we'll see it being a much more common thing that we see are people wearing what they consider ppe <laughs> entirely possible i mean there are obviously lots of other cultural differences that probably contributed to it becoming so acceptable over there but the trigger point was, I think, SARS. Mm. So, so post SARS, it, it massively became a, a feature of society, whereas it wasn't before. And given that SARS, although bad, was nothing compared to what we're seeing now. Yes. Who's to say? I, I would probably be. I think I'd be more surprised if people wouldn't weren't continuing to use mm. bits of PPE like this. Mm. Mm. 
The other, the other thing I, I've, I've wondered, um, because I, you know, there's there's been a lot in the media and there's there's been a um, a poll from the BMA, I think, released today um, on doctors who feel that their PPE is wrong, uh, which obviously is very important. It's important that people feel, and I want to caveat, you know, it is very important that everyone feels safe at work. But this language that has trick, trickled in um, there's been in opinion pieces, has been in has been in documentaries about how healthcare professionals have felt their PPE is. Yeah, I think you know there's there's been we've touched on vaccine hesitancy already about how parents who look at the evidence feel that the evidence isn't right and feel that it's still not safe. I've found quite interesting how our profession that's very evidence-based, very scientific, has still been ver just as susceptible to that scent, that very emotive response of, well, I still don't feel safe. I've looked at the evidence, my PPE matches what Public Health England have said, but I still don't feel safe. I don't know, have you noticed that? Have you? I have, I find that very difficult. Um, so I've, so my, my partner works clinically, so she's actually in a GP practice at the moment, but she's yeah. been working on the wards and is part of, of a number of group group chats, online chats with her colleagues, where there's been a lot of opinion bandied about that that people don't feel safe. And it's not just through PPE. So PPE is certainly one aspect. As you say, people looking at the evidence and making their own minds up and saying, no, this isn't sufficient. I want a full-length gown. I want an FFP. You know, not, not accepting at face value what's being pushed out nationally. But there's also the feeling that any exposure at all to COVID-19 is is bad yeah and whilst on the one hand i i know it's an unprecedented situation and i know that that anyone is potentially susceptible and, and we've had some some ex extremely sad sort of headline headline cases absolutely people who shouldn't be susceptible um suffering so i i get that but we are also as healthcare workers we're in a profession where we're doing pretty much what we signed up to so we're, we're treating people who, who are who are unwell with infectious diseases in some cases. We're we're exposing ourselves to risks, although small and although mitigatable, they are still risks. And I don't know of anyone who I've worked with who has said, "I'm not going to, for instance, take blood on that patient because they've got a bloodborne virus." Sure. You know, th there may be a risk there, but people, people by and large, accept it as part of mm. what they've signed up to. Mm. This kind of, you know, to use the media's sort of phrasing, this this wartime situation mm. seems really to have scared people, to yeah. upset people, mm. and to have made people very, very um, focused on those on those personal risks to themselves. And yeah. I don't know what the solution is, no. but we are. We are supposed to be evidence-based. Mm. Um, we're supposed to to follow that kind of mantra. And if there is clear evidence that such and such a level of PPE is sufficient and people are saying no, why should that be treated any differently to somebody who's refusing to treat someone with a condition based on, based not on evidence, but their own sort of subjective assessment of the risk? Sure. I just think it's potentially, a, I don't know, it, it might just be something that, Never, nothing comes of. I just think it's an interesting position to when you have, uh, you know, doctors, nurses, whomever on social media with a surgical mask and an apron. They're not performing an aerosol generating procedure. It's, so it's completely adequate PPE, 
and they're there going, the government has blood on its hands, or, or similar sort of very emotive, very yeah. dangerous language, I think. No, absolutely. I, th I think that's... <laughs> Those those kind of examples are spectacularly unhelpful because obviously the tabloid press enjoy picking up on those because they are, as you say, emotive and they do they do catch attention. Mm. But if if there is evidence for those measures being insufficient, then that should be the thing that's catching attention. At yeah. the moment, there isn't. There is this sort of separate issue around supply chain issues and having insufficient PPE, and that's absolutely rightly so something the media should be picking up on. But providing somebody with what is in the guidelines is adequate for what they're doing, and for that to then be picked up by the media is, yeah, that, that feels very irresponsible. I think you just wonder what the consequences may be. I don't know. I might be overthinking it. Um, and uh, you, you've mentioned that, that some, you know, the, there's been a lot in the... Uh, uh, has been mentioned, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm a lot, I follow social media a lot, uh, about um, black, Asian, minority, ethnic uh, patients appearing to be disproportionately affected. Uh, again, we're very early on, and we've already said this is going to be years of, of studying and inquiring. Um, have you heard similar? Does this seem to have something behind it, or is it this again something about a reporting issue, a testing issue? We just don't know enough about it yet. I, I would I would say strongly that we don't know enough about it yet because the numbers are still very small. Obviously, I've seen the media coverage, um, and it does you know anecdotally seem to be that more black and minority ethnic healthcare practitioners are being affected. I've also seen the media saying that. The NHS are considering steps to, to shield black and minority ethnic practitioners from as much risk. It's really difficult because I can understand why there's concern. But as with any other sort of epidemiological problem, any other public health problem, you'd want to look at the underlying data and, and mm. sort of scrutinize it sort of critically. So yeah. for a start, going back to what we were talking about with denominators, how many healthcare workers are from minority ethnic backgrounds yes um how many are how many are not so that that's one aspect of it another aspect is we know that people from minority ethnic backgrounds are more likely to get certain diseases anyway and that's a really complicated thing to unpick some of that is obviously genetic but an awful lot of it is 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 in terms of well sort of demographics socioeconomic backgrounds there are in public health what we call wider determinants of health. So everything from the school you went to to the neighbourhood you were brought up in to you know to your parents' habits, they all factor into your to your health and your health outcomes. And we've known for an awfully long time that people from certain ethnic backgrounds and certain socioeconomic backgrounds are more susceptible. So we're going to see a higher rate anyway in certain groups. What I haven't yet seen is a kind of a statistically robust calculation yeah. of what we would expect to see in those groups, given all of those factors, mm. whether what we're currently seeing is an exceedance of that and whether that exceedance is statistically significant. And I think the numbers are too small. The, sort yeah. of the confidence interval there would be massive. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's been something that, that has been mentioned at, at my place of work. You know, people say, Oh, you, you've seen this. Sadiq Khan is, is looking for an inquiry, for example, the mayor of London. Uh, and, and so these things get a bit of traction. And, and I mean, as I my instinct has been we just don't know enough. And whether it's a social economic um, factor 
whether it comes down to a genetic factor that this virus likes certain receptors on cells and if you are of a certain minority you are more like we don't know do we absolutely and we get inquiries like this in public health all the time humans are naturally wired to see patterns even when there aren't patterns and i'm not saying there isn't a pattern here i think it is too early to tell but but we might get an inquiry along the lines of oh there's been a um you know there's been a new waste dump opened up down the end of my road two years ago and in those two years we've seen four cases of childhood cancer on this road um it must be this dump needs to be investigated and we'll do a simple piece of statistical analysis to go basically what I just described. What is the rate we'd expect to see? Mm. Um, what is, you know, what above or below that rate would just be statistical noise and what would be significant? And it's that that we need to do here, I think, before we take it any further. Mm. Because this, this could very well be something real and something mm. pathologically, physiologically underlying, as you say, like something that makes a certain group definitely more susceptible. Mm. Or it could just as easily be that this is a little bit of random variation, completely within what we'd expect to see, but because it's so emotive, it's being picked up um, in a way that may not be helpful. Mm. And, um, I mean, I think you can't really keep politics out of public health, unfortunately. <laughs> um, the the most powerful man in the world, when he's not recommending that people inject people uh, inject each other with bleach has been taking out a lot on the the world health organization he's been pulling money he's been pointing the finger at them um you know how do you feel they've been i know it's just just asking your opinion you know they were criticized a lot uh over the ebola uh epidemic uh, you could call it a pandemic it, it did spread to a few countries um you know they're the director resigned they have a new director you know they have been criticized by mr trump um, but how, how do you feel they've been overall i think they have a very very difficult job um and a, and a very difficult remit one of the other I'm, I'm sorry to keep coming up with these weird little quips it's okay but one of the other things people say about public health um is that you measure public health successes by things that don't happen yeah so if we're doing a really good job in public health land um, lots of things aren't happening. So it's it's very easy to forget we exist and very easy to defund us. Um, and when things go wrong, it, it's at that point that we become obvious. When you add to that, so a lot of the WHO's role is around, you know, global health, public health. Um, when you add to that all the political considerations, you know, they have membership from all these different countries. They've got to keep all of these different relationships ticking over. They've got so many considerations and, and they have to be so intensely bureaucratic by virtue of all these things they're plugged into. They are so limited in what they can say and how they can respond to certain things because of those considerations. I think there were a lot of issues with Ebola. Um, certainly that they could have handled certain aspects better. I don't know the inner workings of it. But moving on to what's happened recently, it's almost unanimous the response to Trump's sort of defunding of them, that even if that might be the right thing to do, this is the wrong time to do it. Um, and I don't think that's the right thing to do. I think there's no one else placed to do the work the WHO does in terms of, sort of global leadership over health, um, you know, setting standards, research, um, support, implementation of, of sort of big health projects, monitoring, alerting, to, to, to cut the funds as a sort of a scapegoating measure, for want of a better word, just seems 
I don't know, childish and, and really, really cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yeah. It's it, it's absolutely tragic. Feels he's pointing anywhere in China as well. It's the China virus. And um, I don't think anyone who listens to this podcast is a Trump fan. So I think <laughs> we can get away with critiquing the president. Um, well, if you look at the analysis of, of his kind of tweets and his media responses, to me, it seems... No, it's transparently childish. He is literally looking for a place to to put the blame, mm. um, and this is just one of those responses. So, mm. yeah, I don't know. It, I think I guess enough said. It's just yeah. very, very disappointing. I think the World Health Organization probably struggles from the same fact the United Nations struggles. If people are countries are signatories, which is great, but can still just go, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, and that's the trouble really with it, isn't it? And they can write a letter to to mention uh, from Team America we will write you a letter and, and that's pretty much what that's the limit of their power largely uh, exactly and, and even even in, in taking those powers they've got to be very careful where and how they tread um, yeah. in order not to damage those relationships so yeah I, I can see that they have a difficult job and I think given all of those constraints they do about as well as they possibly can thank you very much Ben I think we've, no we've covered a lot there, and um, we could probably still we may do more podcasts in the future. That was there's a, there's an awful lot there to unpick. Um, before we go, um, we met, I said that when you work, you do you do work clinically, and you work over at the emergency department at uh, Derby Hospital. Yep. And obviously, the we've we've all been hit in the emergency medicine family the last uh, week or so. The tragic news of of uh, Manjeet Rehat dying um, due to COVID nineteen. Um, I just wondered if you'd like to say a few words about him as somebody who knew him and worked with him. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Jamie. It's, um, I think the news about Manji really, for me, really, really made the crisis hit home. I mean, we all know on a logical level that, that every casualty of, of this or, or any crisis is a human tragedy. But Manji was a, I mean, I've, I've worked on and off at Derby since 2015. Um, he's been there an awful lot longer. And, and he was a real fixture of the department. He was this jolly, reassuring, lovely presence, really supportive. Um, one of those one of those consultants that sort of gave you a feeling of reassurance when you when you walked in, you saw him on the shop floor. The news was, yeah, deeply deeply shocking and sad. Um, he will he will absolutely be missed. He was utterly irreplaceable, and I I guess it it reminds us all that even though we read about these things in the news and, and we hear about them happening, it's happening to real people, um, whether or not you know them. And that, that human cost is very, very real. Hmm. So thank you, thank you again. It, it, um, I, I hope I'm not speaking out of place, but, but absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as everyone who I've worked with is concerned, he will be terribly missed. One of those per- people whose legacy, gen- who genuinely has a legacy, I think people... We will. We want one, um, but I think this is genuinely somebody whose reach goes beyond those who actually knew him to people who didn't know him, but but who genuinely does have a have a legacy. He absolutely does. Yes. Um, well, thank you very much again for coming, Ben. Um, Not at all. Pleasure. Thank you for zooming in. Uh, <laughs> I said we might do more. Um, I'm sure there's things we haven't covered. We we've done a, a very thorough cover, but I'm, as we said, there's there's more we could do. Um, it's been, I'd be very happy to it's been enjoyable actually and it's you. been lovely to get another perspective on things because I'm largely immersed in the public health side so thank you